Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has taught his disciples as one having authority in himself. Not like the scribes or the Pharisees that quoted other people. He spoke about the principle of the kingdom there on the Sermon on the Mount, describing the character of a Christian, the characteristics, beginning with poor in spirit, recognizing one's poverty of spirit to earn, to deserve, to merit salvation, but having to receive that atoning grace, that propitious atonement provided by Jesus Christ to be justified by him alone. But now Jesus and his disciples must descend to the to meet the reality of the misery that um, dwells in the world. The fall brought this sin. Sin brought this sin. This is not the world that God intended. This is the world that came about as a result of Adam's rebellion and disobedience. Often God gets accused of many things by the non-believer, by the humanist, by the religious person, or whoever they may be. Why did God allow it? Why didn't he stop it? Why did he allow Adam this and that and all this? If there is a God, why are they blind kids born? And why is there, you know, birth defects? And why is all the murder? Well, it's, it goes back to the garden. Sin nature. You don't have to go very far. Just look at yourself. Look at your children. Look at your neighbors. There is sin nature that dwells in every person that's born into this world. Our bent is towards evil. We have a potential for good because we're creating the image and likeness of God. But our bent is towards evil and darkness. And any person who denies that, I can prove you wrong real, real fast. Trust me. And so here again, he comes down. There are ten miracles that are presented in groups of threes where Jesus demonstrates a visible demonstration of his power that comes from his divine authority. In chapters 8 and 9, we're only going to look at 8. But let me just kind of break it down for you. The first miracles deal with his authority and power over sickness, the cleansing of the leper we saw this morning, verse 1 through 4, the healing of the centurion servant in 5 through 13, and then the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, 14 through 17. Then um, we're going to have Jesus presenting to us the cost of the call of discipleship in verses 18 through 22. The potential cost of being a disciple in 18 through 20. The priorities and commitment of a disciple in verses 21 and 22. And then we get the next three miracles, which deal with the authority and power over nature. These are found in chapter 8 here, verse 23 to 27, the calming of the wind at the Sea of Galilee, followed by the deliverance of the demoniac at Gadara in verse 28 through 34, and finishing again, um, uh, moving into, I'm sorry, moving into chapter 9, the third one, verse 1 through 8, which is the forgiveness of sins of the paralytic. Now, we're not going to go that far, but let me just give you all of them since we're here. Then Jesus will call um, Matthew uh, to, the, uh, to be his, one of his disciples and later apostles. 
And uh, he explains the fasting in chapter 9, the verse 9 down to 17. The call of Matthew is verse 9 to 13. And the disciples of John question Jesus about fasting in verses 14 through 17. Then we get the third grouping of miracles in uh, chapter 9, 18 down to 34. Uh, this is the power over illness and demons too again. The healing of the two women with the issue of blood and then the young girl in 9.18 to 22. And then you have 23 to 26. Then you have the healing of the two blind men in verse 27 to 30 of chapter 9. And it finishes off with the healing of the mute man possessed in verse 31 to 34 of chapter 9. The remainder, 35 down to 38, is a continuing ministry of Jesus, almost a summary statement as we see in each grouping. Uh, the summary statement in 35, the compassion of Jesus in 36, and the call to the harvest of the disciples in verse 37 through 38. Um, Jesus comes down. He lives in reality. He was a man as you and I. He tired. He slept. He bled. He died. He was God who became man. And yet he came to be that propitious sin, to take away our sin. He came as the last Adam who would undo what the first Adam did. And he would be the only one that would have the authority to forgive sin. <clears throat> the only one who could bring lost man to the Father. No other name, no other way. No other mediator. The Bible is very, very clear. Often people f say the Bible is confusing and it's just, it doesn't make sense. The message is so clear. It's like a red thread and a beaming name from Genesis to Revelation. It only speaks of one person, the Messiah, God's son, Jesus Christ. No one else. The entire law was prophetic of him and types and symbols and ceremony and everything. He is the fulfillment of all. And so here in chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, we have the cleansing of the lepers. It says, And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go uh, your way, show yourselves to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, the request of the leper was really against the law because he was to be six paces away and downwind um, about 150 feet. He was contagious. He was ostracized from society. He came worshiping Jesus, notice. Here he demonstrates the very first beatitude, poor in spirit. He knew he had nothing worthy of himself. He's coming base on who Jesus was and what Jesus could do. He worshiped, he knelt, he kissed the ground, he put his face on the ground. That's how the word is used in obeisance to a superior 
Mark and Luke tells us exactly that. He implored him, falling on his face, kneeling, full of leprosy. These were the last severe stages. Leprosy uh, consumes a person's uh, skin and, and its uh, fingers and nose and any extremity. It just deadens the skin, the ability to feel anything. And there's a distortion of the body, a putrefaction, if you will. Um, and yet, this man in the full stages of this disease, he recognized the sovereignty of Jesus. If you are willing. He understood who Jesus was when he said, Lord, it wasn't a polite sir. It was the Messiah. This leopard is a Jew. He knew the word of God. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the promises of God. He recognized the sovereignty of Jesus. If you are willing. Healing cannot be demanded of God. Healing is just a, a, a divine sovereign choosing of God. Not who he likes or doesn't like or who he thinks is better than another, but simply because he knows what's best. He knows what's best for my life. I do not know that. Why did God allow this? Well, you can ask him when you get there if you don't trust him for it here. But... Going over it and over it isn't going to make your life any peaceful. You've got to rest in the sovereignty and the wisdom of God. That he is in control of your life if you truly have given your life to Christ. And he is very aware of everything that goes on in your life as well as mine. He recognizes his ability to cleanse him. You can make me clean. And yet leprosy couldn't be healed by any doctor. Couldn't be um, outgrown or anything, the law of leprosy in Leviticus 13 and 14, and yet the provision is given there for when God sovereignly moved upon an individual so he might, as it says here, to present himself before the priest. Immediately he was cleansed. Jesus tells him not to tell anyone. As you know, as you read John especially, it says our, my, um, his time was not yet come. People were always trying to um, make Jesus known and set him up as king. John 6 tells us that. And Jesus was, came to be right on time and in step with the Father. And so that's one reason. The second reason is that the law required him to go to the priest. Again, Leviticus 13 and 14. And he would offer that sacrifice. The priest would lock him in for seven days, look at his skin and... If there was any question, he would lock him in for another seven days. And then he would declare him clean or unclean. And then he would go through the whole ritual of the, um, of the two birds. And one killed, the other one with water, the blood over it, and then the lamb and everything else. And he would be now reunited with um, uh, society, his family, because he would have to live outside the camp. Leviticus tells us that in chapter 14. Never to touch, never to hug, never to have that social contact. And so it was a type of death. Um, Moses' uh, sister, Miriam, was struck with leprosy in Exodus 4, 6. Uh, Uzziah, uh, for his rebellion to burn incense in 2 Kings 5, 22. Um, and so leprosy is also a type of sin. Sin destroys our ability to sense 
what is right and wrong. It calluses first our conscience, then it hardens our heart. But while it calluses our conscience at first, there's a lot of destruction that goes on as our heart is hardened more and more. You know, as you grew up in the world, you know, the first time you did something you weren't supposed to, your conscience accused you. Romans chapter 2, chapter 1. And yet the second time was easier than the third time. Then pretty soon we moved on to something else, more severe, more grave, whatever it may be. Then pretty soon it was just like water off a duck's back. It didn't matter anymore. Somebody say, you know, you shouldn't do that. Ah, you're like, shut up. You know, and you just hardened your heart. That's how we work. And so when we see people in the world, because we've been so removed for so long, sometimes we forget and we got to remember they're dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, sin destroys your ability to to understand and to sense the right and wrongness of things anymore. And it hardens the heart towards God. And so here this leper, he just comes and Jesus heals him completely, immediately, as he demonstrates faith in who Jesus was and his power. When we get to verse 6 through 13 of the healing of the centurion's servant, in verse 5 it says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, um, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, the request of centurion here is out of love for his servant. Mark and Luke give us more details. He was dear to him. He was near death. The centurion was a Gentile. He was in charge over a hundred men. That's what a centurion like last century, 100 years, same root word, okay? And um, they're always presented in a very good light in Scripture. You remember when the um, book of Acts chapter 10 says that Cornelius, the centurion of the Italian guard, was praying before God, and he sends some servants to go get Peter, right? And when Peter walks in, he, he, he falls to the ground and kneels and Peter says, get up, I'm a man just like you. The centurions that are presented throughout the Gospels also in very, very good light. And so um, he heard about Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 10 gives us greater detail that he actually, though Matthew presents him as he himself presenting this case, when we look at, Matthew, at Luke and then Mark and we put them side by side, we get other details. Luke tells us that he sent a delegation of Jewish elders to ask for him in his person. And so when they asked of Jesus, it was as if the centurion was asking. That's the culture. And they said that he loved Israel and he had built a synagogue for them. And again, that he... Um, he, he, he had compassion over his servant. He was dear to him and he was near death. And also that as the elders and Jesus walked towards the house and they were near the house, that then he sent a friend from the house 
to confirm that he didn't believe he was worthy to have Jesus to walk into the house, giving evidence and confirmation again that he was a Gentile. Because when Peter went into the house of Cornelius, he took back some Jews with him to Jerusalem because he knew he was going to be accused of walking into a Gentile's home and being defiled. It's just the way it was in those times. And so, in verse 7, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. Amazing. Amazing. He just, uh, when he says Lord here, even though he's a Gentile, he has to understand in a clear way that some of the Jews did not, that he was the Messiah. By his very request, he is demonstrating that he believed that Jesus had the power, the authority, the ability, as we're going to see through just a simple word, to heal him, to make him whole completely. The faith of the centurion in Jesus confesses that he understood his authority from heaven. In verse 9, he says, For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes to another, Come, and he comes to my servant, Do this, and he does that. And I mentioned this morning that the simple principles that are absolute for the human race, authority and submission, are so important, and they work on every level, in every area of life. Husband and wife, authority and submission. Parents and children, authority and submission. The job, a boss, and the employer. Government, authority and submission. Every level that there's going to be efficiency and things accomplished, someone has to give the authority, the orders, and others carry it out. Those are absolute principles when they are operating in a just manner. Society is safe, it's functional, it's productive, and it doesn't have to be Christian. I'm just looking at the physical, economic side and the safety of society. But again, even if all that is happening, if a person doesn't know Jesus Christ, then it really doesn't matter what you have because you're lost, you're dead, right? How many of men and women have had everything in life, moral people, ethical people, philanthropists, compassionate given millions of dollars away, if not billions. And yet, they've died in their sin. Now, all of those works have helped people here while they're here, but it has not benefited them when they've died before God. There is no reward, there is no acknowledgement by God, for they are enemies of God. The person who does not bow their knee to Jesus in recognition that they are lost and depraved and enemies of God are exactly that, the enemies of God. 
regardless of how moral they might be, regardless of how ethical they might be. This offends people. This just drives people crazy. And so they accuse God of being unjust. And if that's the God that he is, I want nothing to do with him. Like if, he, if he's kind of bent out of shape over your opinion. Or if he's losing some peace or something. And yet it only demonstrates the rebellious of man against the creator, the one who made us. The one who died for our sins because he loves us so much. It's an affront to his holiness and to his love. And so in verse 10, Jesus heard it. And he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So here he exalts this Gentile centurion who believes and understands who Jesus is, while the Jews who were sent in delegation to represent him did not believe that. He attributes the faith to the centurion, not the Jewish elders. Yet they were the people of God. How many people are in church tonight and went to church this morning and they heard a teaching of the word of God and yet it's a formality they're like the Jews they're so far from God because they haven't been born again they're not walking according to the word of God and yet thinking that if I go to church then I, I you know I'll, I'll, I'll at least be in you know maybe God Remember the church of Laodicea? Lukewarm. Right? From 1 to 10, how would you grade yourself on reading and studying the Word of God? 5, 2, 7, 10? How about praying? How about being involved in ministry? How about being faithful to come to church and be the church? How about in giving? If you categorize yourself by the five, you're lukewarm. You're right in the middle, cold or hot. Jesus says, I would rather you be cold or hot than to be lukewarm. You see? And somehow, with the years... It's dangerous where people can just kick back and say, well, you know, I, I just, you know. I. There is no option. When you accepted Christ, you died. And you're to live for Jesus Christ in every way. First the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you. And the culture can put us to sleep. Our own rationale, our own reasoning our own justifications. And yet again, the plumb line is the word of God. He marveled at his faith. No one needed to tell Jesus. He knew what was in man, John 2, 24 and 25 tells us. 
And so he goes on in verse 11 and say, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. These are the patriarchs. Not Jews that are going to sit with them, but Gentiles. And yet, the kingdom of heaven speaks about the kingdom age. The Jew saw only two ages, the present age and the age to come, the kingdom age. That's why the Jews rejected Jesus because they were expecting a conquering Messiah, not a suffering Messiah. They attribute Isaiah 53 to the nation's suffering, not to a Messiah. That's their mistake. They spiritualized it subjectively. The disciples kept asking Jesus, will you restore the kingdom at this time? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit. Then when the Holy Spirit came, they understood that there was going to be an age of grace of the church before the kingdom. But the Jewish mind only saw the present and the age to come when the Messiah would come, knock off the power of the world and set up the kingdom. Wow. And so, here again in 12, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sons of the kingdom are the people of God, the Jews, the nation of Israel. Paul the Apostle speaks about it in Romans chapter 2. Not all is here Israel of Israel. Their circumcision is made uncircumcision because God is looking for the circumcision of the heart. Not a ritual. It symbolizes the cutting of the flesh life. No longer living for the flesh. No longer having the flesh rule us. But by the divine nature, the new mirth, being able to submit to God because he's the authority over my life. He's the master, I'm the servant. His word gives me my orders. They're the same orders for you. I don't have any different orders from you. We both have the same orders. The same MOS. And so here he makes the sharp contrast. Commending this Gentile who had faith in the Messiah because what was about to come to pass was the church age, the age of grace where Jew and Gentile are one in Christ Jesus, Ephesians and the heavenlies. Breaking down the middle wall of partition. Wow. No Jew, no Gentile, no city, no barbarian, no male, no female, no slave, no bond. But one in Christ Jesus completely. Amazing. The grace of God. This was declared throughout the prophets, Malachi 1.11, Jeremiah 16.19, Zechariah 8.22, and many, many others. Um, it's very, very clear. Now, in verse 13, the servant is healed. He says, Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And the servant was healed that same hour. And so the servant, the tense here is the passive, and he was healed as the petition was going on. And he attributes the faith of the centurion to the healing of his servant who was ill, deadly sick, about to die, the other gospels tell us. And sometimes... It depends on the faith of a person. And God says, be it according to your faith, like the woman with the issue of blood that we'll see next time. 
Other times it's the faith of other people, the men who tore up the roof and let that paralytic down. The faith of the friends that brought him. At other times, God just heals sovereignly as he wills. And so the context is very important. We have to be careful we don't get caught up with formulas or methodologies or stuff like that. As I said this morning, Jesus healed in different ways. Never did he heal the same way at the same time. He told one blind man to go wash in the pool, while the other one he took dirt and spit and put in his eyes. Then he saw the men as trees, and, and Jesus did it again. It doesn't mean that he messed up. It's, oh, let me have another shot at it. He's showing us there's no methodology of power as in well, who is doing it and what he's doing. Not in a method, not in some formula. But having faith in Jesus, those provisions we're going to see are still available to us today. By his stripes we are healed. And so, here he lays out this miracle, amazing. In verse 14 to 15, you have the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, as we saw this morning also. It's recorded in all three Gospels, Mark 1, 29 through 31, and Luke 4, 38 through 39. He says that when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw... Uh, his wise mother lying sick with a fever, a very high fever. Mark and Luke tell us uh, malaria. Um, there's a couple other types of fevers, but really high. Malaria was big in the, the north side of the Galilee because it was swampland. Do you remember when Israel bought the land in 1948 from the Arabs? It was all swampland. They had to drain the land. They brought in eucalyptus from Australia to drain the land and to just open the ways and everything else. It's very rich, very fertile. Malaria was big. There was another lake above the Sea of Galilee. They've dried that up. There's be malaria a lot up there too. And so here she is sick. Jesus invited to come to dinner. She's sick. She started. Now she's sick. And so he touched her. And the fever left her. And she arose and served them. Luke and Mark tell us that they brought this attention to Jesus. And he touched her. He healed her. Uh, faith for myself, what I need God to deal with me, like the leper to touch me. Faith for others when they ask me to pray for them, like the servant of the centurion. And faith when people are sick or things are going on in my own family, that I step out and don't think it's only for others, but that I realize that God wants to work in my life also. Always. Somehow we think that God will do everything for others, but not for me. Not so. Not so. James says, you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask amiss that it might be consumed of your own lusts or desires. And so sometimes God doesn't answer prayer because our motive is wrong. Sometimes God doesn't answer prayer because we're in sin. Sin hinders us. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, God's hands not short that he cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that cannot hear, but your sins has separated you from God, and he turns his back on us. He's talking to his people in the context. First John tells us very clearly, 
If we confess our sins, he is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I write these things unto you that you do not practice sin as a habit of life, but when you stumble and fall, you have Jesus Christ, the righteous lawyer, the advocate for the defense, 1 John 2, 1, to make intercession for us. He's a propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world, 1 John 2, 2 says. And so we have an advocate, the book of Hebrews 4, 16 and 17 speaks that we're to come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need. Night and day, you can go. Middle of the night, early in the morning, Saturday, Sunday, he never closes. <laughs> He's open all the time. And so, verse 16 says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, the very same word that he healed the leper with, and he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled. This is a key phrase in Matthew, that it might be fulfilled. Fulfilling the prophecies, writing to the Jewish community. Matthew is writing to the Jew. It's a Jewish gospel. That it might be fulfilled was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So in the atonement, Isaiah 53, 4, there's a provision for our healing. It is not absolute every time like Peter quotes it in 1 Peter 2.24, for our sins. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be forgiven and cleansed from their sin, and their sins will be cast in the deepest ocean and cast as far as east as the west, and they will never be mentioned. But the healing provision is sovereignly by God's choosing. But the provision is there. Or do you think that God was more interested in the people that he walked in the midst in the first century and he just thought the rest of the church would not have that type of need or privilege. Of course not. And yet there are those who would deny that God heals today. They would deny the supernatural gifts that are named in the book of Corinthians and in Romans. Therefore today, sovereignly as he wills and as he disperses over and over and over again. And so when we get to verse 18, down to 22, you have the cost of discipleship, a little in between here, the miracles. And when Jesus saw a great multitude about him, he, um, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Now, he is really giving a summary statement there from verse 16. Um, of as he did in chapter 4 towards the end, and we'll see this every time a section. Here in verse 18 now, um, the multitude is still present there, and he gives the command to go on the other side. In verse 18, this is the next day. Um, from 17 back to the Sermon on the Mount, it's all one day. The Sermon on the Mount, then the coming down, the leopard, the servant of the centurion, Mother-in-law, the demon possessed, the sick that night, that evening. The, the Sabbath was over. Now this is the next day. Okay, so you have to follow Matthew. The Lord is still in great demand here. The multitude around him. So Jesus departs to the other side, the Sea of Galilee. This is the Gentile Decapolis. 
At first, it would seem as if Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds. People say, how dare he? But the fact is, if we look at the other synoptics, he says that he came and he had to preach the kingdom of God in other cities. Luke 4.43 is one of them. So Jesus went all around the galley. Three quarters of his ministry was done from the upper north corner from Capernaum down to the southern end on the west side. Three quarters of the ministry of Jesus was performed there. The other quarter towards Jerusalem and the other areas. It's amazing. In 19, he says, Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The aspiring scribe here wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. The scribes were those who duplicated the laws, you know, the scrolls. The law of Moses, the scriptures, they interpreted, they taught. This man was prepared in this, with this, he was part of the Sanhedrin. He marked something different about Jesus. Hopefully he did follow him. We're not told exactly what happens. But he lays a very simple principle here. The commitment of the scribe was, I will follow you wherever you go. Words are cheap. You say, well, how do you know he's not sincere? By what Jesus says. Sometimes we can think we're sincere, but then when we have to pay the cost, then we shirk back. We don't follow through. Look at verse 20. And Jesus said to him, now Jesus, listen to his words, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus declared to him that there was no guarantee he would able be able to enjoy the comforts of a home or maybe a family. Why would Jesus say that? He didn't ask that because Jesus saw what's in his heart. Even though he says what he said, remember the rich young ruler? Which of the commandments? I've kept them all. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor. He answered what was in his heart, not his words. Very, very important here. Don't miss this. The answer of Jesus is in response to what was in his heart, not the words that he expressed. Jesus was saying to him, don't make the decision without considering the costs. Sometimes people make emotional decisions. They're just happy, they're just real, oh, they're so excited, and they, let's do it. Some people even get married that way. Are you kidding me? Then, a day after the honeymoon, Wah, wah, wah. The ambulance. You have to think through what you're going to commit to the Lord, ladies and gentlemen. Think it through. There are no guarantees 
for your life in terms of what the world can offer you. Yet what God offers you is the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And to be used by God to pull people out of the fire. That's what he offers you. It doesn't mean that everybody's called to poverty. It doesn't mean that everybody's called to persecution. But we're to understand that all those things are very, very possible. If not probable. Verse 21. He says, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The disciple of Jesus. This is now a disciple from the crowds. The other guy wanted to be a disciple. This man, um, Lord, let me first bury my father. Now this doesn't mean that his father was had just died or about to die and that he first wanted to take care of this because otherwise the words of Jesus are very uncompassionate, right? It would be unjust. This is a cultural saying that says, Jesus, because I'm the oldest or because I attend to the matters of the house, I cannot leave until my father dies and then I bury him. Then I'll be free to follow you. Now, the response of Jesus makes this very clear. Once again, listen to him. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead in verse 22. His father was not a believer in Jesus. Therefore, he was spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Might have been a moral person, ethical person, nice person. His father could be buried by other members of the family that also did not know Jesus, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, this disciple didn't understand the priority of a disciple. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all those things shall be added unto you. In fact, Jesus is saying two things. Do not let procrastination rob you of God's call. And do not let spiritually dead people keep you from following me. Listen very carefully. If you listen and you read and you study some of the sayings of Jesus, you could conclude that Jesus was anti-family. Listen to Luke. 12, 51 to 53. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Whoa, Jackson. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that when he comes and makes himself known, there will be a clear division. Those who believe and trust in Jesus and those who do not. 
And even when it comes to close family members, mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, there will be a division. One will be alive, the other will be dead spiritually. One will see the importance of the kingdom, the other will think it's a waste of time. One will so be so grateful for the forgiveness of their sin, the other one thinks you're crazy. One is blind, the other one sees clearly. One is looking for Jesus to come. The other one has no need of Jesus. That's why sometimes we feel closer to those who are Christians in the church than even some of our family members who do not know Christ. doesn't mean we hate them. We don't hate them. We love them more than ever before because we know they're lost like we were. We don't think we're better. We pray for them. We're hoping, we're praying that God would deal with their hearts. They would respond to God. There's a difference, big difference. Look at 23 to 27, the calming of the sea. He says, now when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose in the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And then the disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the seas obey him? Wow. The sudden storm crossing the sea. The disciples got into the boat with Jesus. Mark it well. The twelve. Did the two want to be disciples? Did they get in the boat? I don't know. Mark tells us there were other little boats with Jesus. Mark 4.36 when they're crossing over. The only one that tells us that. Then the tempest arose here in the sea. This was a communication in there. The Sea of Galilee is lower than sea level. Um, hundreds of feet down and the wind from the south swoops up from the Mediterranean Sea, and there could be storms in an instant. These were seasoned fishermen. Keep that in mind. Tempest means shaking or commotion. We get our word earthquake from it, seismic. Great, megas, huge in intensity and devastation. These are seasoned fishermen. Kind of reminds us of Jonah. As the seasoned sailors were fearful and crying like little girls, it was a huge storm. And they knew it was because of Jonah. The boat was covered with waves, but Jesus was asleep. How can that be? Mark 4.37 tells the waves beat into the boat and it was already filled. No wonder they were freaking out. Jesus seems to be unconcerned. But in reality, he's in control. He's in control. The sudden fear, look at 25. In the midst of the storm, the disciples woke Jesus saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. These were seasoned fishermen again. Born, grew up there. They, 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 they knew that lake like the back of their hand. They knew the storms, everything. The storm must have been one horrific, tempestuous whirlwind of water and everything else 
It just struck fear in them. In fact, Mark 4.38 says, But he was in the, stor- in the stern, speaking of Jesus, asleep on the pillow. Think about it. He's been in the Sermon on the Mount, all the healing, all the crowds, Peter's house, then all the crowds. Then the next day he's going across. He's beat, tired. And they awoke him and said to them, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They're accusing him. Wow. Now, I know you've never accused Jesus of anything, so I won't even try to go there. Sure you have. You and I have. Lord, why did you allow this? What, what are you doing? I've trusted you, and how could you allow this? When really, if I examine it, I brought it upon myself. I've made decisions on my own. If I have been following Jesus and he allows those things to come, then I rest in God. I know that he's put me there. Then he's going to direct and guide me. It's when I'm not sure that he's directing me because I've made the decisions and I've directed my life that now I freak out. Verse 26, the response of Jesus to his disciples, he said, Why are you fearful, or you of little faith? The word but marks the sharp contrast to their lack of faith and trust in him. If Jesus is in the boat, the boat cannot sink. Listen, they didn't listen to Jesus. Back in chapter 8, verse 18, it says here in verse 18 of this chapter, he commanded to depart, listen, to the other side. Luke tells us, let us cross to the other side. If Jesus says, let us go over, let us cross, you're going to cross. Now, he doesn't promise how you're going to get there. Whether it's going to be testings or freakouts or anything else. But you're going to get there. Stay in the stinking boat. If Jesus is in the boat with you, you cannot go down. They didn't listen. They would get to the other side. How and when is God's business? Do not compare yourself among yourselves as we be unwise, Paul says. Well, Lord, why did, you know, when when Jesus told that um, John was going to live a little longer and Peter was going to be crucified upside down, he you know, right away he said, how about this guy? What do you care about him? We always are trying to, you know, well, how about me? How about him? How about, it's just me and the Lord. Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, what do you have for my life? And then from there, to just trust him to do the work in me and through me to be an extension of his hands and his mind and his grace to others. It's important. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the seas and there was a great calm. Again, reminder of Jonah. When they threw him overboard, the storm and the sea was calm. That's a miracle. Listen, if a storm ceases, the sea doesn't. It takes days for it to calm down. Both the sea and Jonah and both here, the wind and the Sea of Galilee, glass, you could ski on it. Miracle, absolute miracle. 
The response of the disciple to Jesus, they marvel, wondered in admiration, who can this be? Duh. The winds and the sea even obey him. The creator. The one who he said he was, the Messiah, sent from the Father. In 28 through 38, you have the two demon-possessed men at Gadara. It says that when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, there met him um, two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceeding fear so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? Wow. Interesting here. The arrival at Gadara encounters a demoniac here in verse 28. Two men, demon-possessed, the Gadarenes, Gadara, Gernesenes. There's different words that are, are, are used in the Gospels. The country of the Gadarenes were settled by the tribe of Gad, the territory of the Gentiles now, the Decapolis. Remember, Gad, Manasseh, and half tribe of, uh, and Reuben, and half tribe of Manasseh settled on the east side. They shouldn't have. They were the first to go in captivity. They should have taken their inheritance. But it was good grazing land for cattle, finances again, physical benefit. What did it serve them? Nothing. Nothing. It's about six to seven miles inland. They both came out of the tomb notice. Mark and Luke tell, tell us it's only one because they're focusing on the one. Matthew tells us there were two. No contradiction at all. They were exceedingly fierce. Luke says they were naked, demon-possessed, naked men running around. That's scary. Luke eight twenty-seven, And no one could pass by. They just terrorized people, whoever would come by there. In verse 29, the words of the demons are interesting. They acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, the incarnate Savior, the last Adam. Demons know. They have no problem. Everybody's going around saying, who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? Demons say, hi, Jesus, Son of God, what are you doing? Our time not yet come. Wow. They recognize their time of judgment in the future. Have you come to torment before our time? Demons are fallen angels. That's all they are. They need to possess a body. Why? We don't know. But when a person is exercised with a demon, then they need to be born again, lest he go out and grab seven other demons and come in, and his latter end is worse than the first, Jesus said. So whenever you're dealing with demon-possessed people, you want to make sure that you minister the gospel to them so they're born again, because that demon will come back with seven greater demons. Now, no Christian can be demon-possessed. Don't believe the trash that goes on in some Christian churches. They have delivering ministries. Bunk. Not one instance in the New Testament or all where a believer is ever possessed. Find me a verse. You cannot. You will not. You have to twist the scriptures. That's blasphemous. And so in verse 30 to 32, the request of the demons here. He says, now a good way off from them were a herd of many swine feeding pigs. And so the demons begged them, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. 
And so the demons um, begged him. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swines, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. The people were raising pigs. They were descendants of Gad. That's Gentile territory. Now the Decapolis, the ten cities of the Gentiles, but their Jews were raising pigs. Devil ham. Against the law. So when Jesus allows them to be destroyed, there's no crime being committed here. There's no argument about right or wrong. It was illegal for them to do so. Completely. Plus, human life has a higher value than animals. You understand this? Now, if you're a PETA person, don't write me. You don't seem to mind when you eat meat from the market because someone else killed that animal. You don't mind to wear some clothes that came from an animal because you didn't kill it. It's hypocrisy. God gave animals for us for food and for clothing. That's why he made a lot of them. Be kind. Don't be cruel to animals. Use them as God intended. So the higher value is human life here. They had compromised their belief of life in the law. Years now, the demons there in verse 31 begged them to permit them to go. They need the permission of Jesus. They didn't want to go to the abyss. Luke 8.31 tells us the ultimate judgment. God will cast all these demons and Satan in the Gehenna, the lake of fire. For a thousand years, Satan's going to be bound in the abuso. And so Jesus ordered them to go. And they rush down the hill. And if you look at Gadara, if you go with us in May, we'll, be, we'll visit that area. There's only one place where it's steep, and that happens. That's the area of Gadara there. Everything else is easy slope down to the Sea of Galilee, a lake. It's called Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, and the Gennesaret also. So there's different names for it. Now in verse 33 says, Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged them to depart from their region. Horrific. The rejection of Jesus by the people. Behold, the whole city came out to see Jesus. And they see this man clothed and sane in his right mind. Mark 5.15 and Luke 8.35 tells us. And they're not thankful and concerned about this man who's been made whole. But their concern is for the pigs, the commercial aspect. And they want Jesus to leave because he has just ruined their pig business. Bacon. Wow. They would rather have wealth than these two men restored. What a sad commentary. On so many people today, you know, when we first came to the Lord in the early 70s, it was right after the 60s and the full-blown, you know, 
San Francisco, you know, Haight-Ashbury and everything, and flower children. And uh, I had fathers come and talk to me and say, you know, I, 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 at least my, my daughter used to be on drugs and promiscuous, but at least I understood her. Now as a Christian, I don't understand her. And, they would, and, and, and I heard a father that I would rather have her the way she was. What kind of father would say that? Amazing. Jesus devised, ladies and gentlemen, are you for him or against him? If you're neutral, you're against him. No decision is a decision against Jesus Christ. Choose you this day who you're going to serve. The gods of your fathers on the other side of the river or Yahweh. Jesus Christ or the gods of the world. It's a choice that will determine where you spend eternity. God does not determine that. You and I determine where we spend eternity by what we believe and what we confess and how we live according to Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We thank you for tonight and we thank you for your word and we thank you for your mercies over our lives, Lord. How you've taken care of us and been so kind to us. And Lord, you look after us. We pray tonight, Lord, if there's anybody who's here who doesn't know you, that they would call on your name and repent from their sins over the internet, Lord, also. And the Lord, you would be glorified in your word, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You're the only one that can make that decision. The Holy Spirit convicts you, turns on the light so you can see your poverty of spirit, and then either you will agree with Him or say, you know what, I don't agree with you. And God will honor your choice. He will not force you to be saved. He will not force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell, but you really don't have to go there. You really don't. He loves you so much. So if you don't know Jesus and you want to accept him, whether you're here or over the internet, this is your prayer of repentance. He's going to forgive you and make you his child right now by grace through faith. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.